Mayo Clinic presents the Always On EM podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Frank Bellamconda. Everyone, welcome to another episode of Always On EM. I'm excited to come to you with my co-host, Dr. Alex Finch. This is Dr. Venk Belamkanda, and today we have one of the kindest, most intelligent people I've worked with, and I've had the chance to interact with him and his residents for quite a while now. I want to introduce Dr. Lyle Jones, a consultant in the Department of Neurology here at Mayo Clinic. Dr. Jones, welcome to this podcast. We are really excited about having you. Could you share a little bit about your journey to this point and how you grew into a passion for neurology? Sure. And Venk and Alex, thank you for having me on the podcast today. I'm really excited to spend time with you and it's an honor to be here. When I went to medical school, I actually thought I was going to go into primary care. That was my passion up to that point. And it was really in neuroanatomy and the intricacies of the nervous system that I got fascinated with neurology and I spent the rest of medical school trying to talk myself out of it and I failed to do so. And It's been a pleasure ever since. I'm one of those physicians who enjoys going to work every day. And I don't know why everyone doesn't go into neurology personally, with with all due respect to to you and your esteemed audience. It's really just a, it's, it's a lot of fun every day and it's a constant learning exercise. It's a very humbling profession. You know, uh, for me, it was my first rotation as a physician on uh, the outpatient neurology clinic that you all have. And it was incredibly inspiring and humbling the patients that you all care for and the way in which you dive into their lives. It's a true honor to have you all as colleagues. Now, you were a little shy in sharing some of the details, but for those who don't know, Lyle is a teacher of the year recipient several times over, in fact, is in the Hall of Fame for educators here at Mayo Clinic. And you've been residency director for neurology. Are you still currently? I am. I've been the residency program director for almost nine years. And actually, Thursday is my last day as program director. My term will be complete. We do a term model here at Mayo Clinic, which I think is a good leadership model overall. And it's been a fantastic experience working with really smart, altruistic, creative, energetic, young future neurologists has, has really been the highlight of my career. Working That's with awesome. the neurology residents is just a joy and, and has been throughout your leadership. In our current emergency department in Rochester, for all of our listeners, the neurology residents do a rotation and are so incredibly helpful coming in and evaluating our ED patients. And it's a joy to work with them. They enjoy it too. And it's an important growth experience for them. It's a place where they can demonstrate the skills they've developed. And I think in hindsight, many of us look back on our emergency medicine rotation as really one of the defining educational experiences of our training. And and I think that's true in a lot of places. And I think that's a testament to the work that you all do every day, right? Not knowing what's going to come in the door. That's a little bit of an adjustment for a detail-oriented neurologist. It's an important growth experience for us. Speaking of things that could come through the door, I think we should start this out with a case. We're picturing ourselves as emergency physicians. We're in the last 30 minutes of a shift. It's about 1 a.m. The patient gets roomed, and on the board, we see a chief complaint of generalized weakness. As an emergency physician, and I have the opportunity of seeing Dr. Jones, he's smiling. This is a patient who, there's a lot of things running through our minds as emergency physicians. Is this sepsis? Is it a pneumonia? Is it somebody just feeling a little bit weak today? There's a, there's a lot going through our minds. I was hoping to pick your brain at this point. 
when I walk in and I'm starting to get my history, what types of things in the history are pointing me away from the things that I see most commonly and really starting to make me say, there's something a little bit more interesting here? It's a great question, Alex. It, it always is the last 30 minutes, right, of the shift when, when something comes in. Absolutely. For us, it's Friday afternoon. I'm glad you said weakness because weakness is really a good place to start. I think when we when we encounter these patients in the clinic, we often have the luxury of time to think through. And, and often patients come to clinic with longer standing complaints than perhaps bring them to the emergency department. It's often more precipitous. But when I hear a patient talk about weakness, the first thing I want to decide is, is it really weakness in the way I think about weakness? Many times patients will talk about weakness. And when I tease out the symptoms they're actually experiencing, it might be something that I would characterize as fatigue or tiredness, sleepiness, a tendency to fall asleep, or a malaise, a lack of feeling well. And those are obviously important distinctions. And that's why I think it's great that you go in with an open aperture and a, and a wide differential for what weakness could be, because it really could be a systemic illness and not neurologic in basis. When I think about weakness myself as a neuromuscular neurologist, I think about loss of muscle power. So if a patient has loss of muscle power and I'm talking to them about that, I really am excited to get to the neurologic exam, which is a great hobby. If any of your listeners don't have a hobby and they want one, neurologic examination <laughs> is just fun. You have That's two, amazing. They're Babinski reflexes. You can walk around the airports or Walmart and, and do observational neurologic exams on people. But if a patient has weakness, they have usually a demonstrable loss of muscle power somewhere. And it could be the muscles that move our arms and legs. It could be the muscles that uh, ventilate that we use to breathe. It could be muscles that help us speak and swallow or that move our eyes. And so I really want to use the exam to characterize that. And there are some simple things that you can do. I think that's really incredible. I agree with you. It's, it's about trying to get to weakness and away from fatigue. Are there any pro tip type questions that, that you might say to the patient to try and really hone in on that? And then when you're doing your exam, similarly pro tips and trying to get the patient who, even if they feel fatigued, they may not participate as much. Is there any specific things that you really ask your residents? Were they able to do this thing? Sure. One can always do a complete neurologic examination, but it's not always relevant and there's not always time to be honest, especially if you're managing in a busy emergency department. So there are some very simple things you can do to screen for meaningful weakness. And it's a screen, so it's not perfect. It's a little difficult, especially if a patient is, is tethered to an IV, but one of the greatest challenges to, to our muscle strength, especially in our lower limbs, is walking and standing. So if you can get them in a chair, have them fold their arms across their chest and stand up. If they can do that, especially if they can do that repeatedly, their hip musculature, their proximal lower limb strength is probably pretty good. An additional easy thing to do is watch them walk. And when we watch a patient walk, it's, it's actually an assessment of not only muscle strength, but coordination and sensation and is really a stress test for the neurologic system. So a patient who can stand and walk, it doesn't ensure that there's not a neurologic or neuromuscular problem, but it's certainly some reassurance that they have reasonably preserved uh, lower limb neurologic function. 
in neurology, we'll often rely on the confrontational exam, meaning that we will have the patient contract muscles and we'll push on them. And that's fine, but sometimes that can be a little subjective in terms of how much effort the patient may be putting forward. A patient who has pain, for example, might give way, and it might be difficult to detect mild weakness in that setting. I have to say, I loved the concept of a stress test for the neurological system. I haven't thought about walking in that way, but I will say that it's something that is commonly missed in the emergency department just because of what you described. We're so quick and efficient at getting our monitor leads on the patient, our blood pressure cuff, our oxygen saturation, our IV in, and all of those are barriers to doing the stress test of the neurosystem. And Venk, please correct me, but when I think about M&Ms associated with neurology and emergency medicine, the question always comes up at the end, did anyone get the patient up and walk them? It is commonly missed because as a, from a systems point of view, we make it so challenging to do. And, and I'm, uh, I'm so grateful that you highlighted it. I've had several encounters that I wished I had done differently that surrounded neurologic diseases. And a lot of them came down to having the patient walk. Also, the getting out of a chair with your arms crossed, I can see how that would be a real test of the lower limb strength and core strength. An even better one is to get up off the floor, which the older you get, the more you realize that's challenging. Most patients are not willing to get down on the floor of a clinic room or a hospital room, but that's another opportunity or an option to see what is their not only lower limb proximal strength like, but their upper limb as well. And as far as walking goes, it's walking, it's a miracle. We don't fall all the time. Every step is a near catastrophe. We are purposely throwing ourselves off balance, hoping that our next footfall catches us. And it's also an important functional measure, right? If we have a patient who can't walk for whatever reason, from a management perspective, that's often a patient who just can't go home, regardless of what's going on. Could I follow up? These are remarkably valuable physical exam tests. Do you have a similar historical question that you ask that, that really changes your mindset or differential for the patient? I think if you see a patient who has generalized weakness in the emergency setting and you've established that, there are some historical features that are important to help you determine what type of problem this is, what category of neurologic or neuromuscular disorder you may be dealing with, and as a result of that, what your management strategies would be. When we deal with neurologic emergencies and in hindsight, we say, aha, this was the answer. That aha moment usually comes from the history rather than from a laboratory test or an imaging study. So a detailed history is, is always helpful, but again, can be challenging in the acute setting when you're busy and you have a lot of sick patients. If I see a patient who I'm thinking might have what I would call an acute neuromuscular syndrome, and the two prototypic disorders we would think of in that category would be Guillain-Barre syndrome or myasthenia gravis or myasthenic crisis. There are some historical things that might help me decide, well, is it either one of these or something else? For patients who have Guillain-Barre, one of the hallmark features of that are sensory symptoms. So they may have tingling is, is sometimes what they will call it. We would call that paresthesia, the presence of sensation that shouldn't be there. It may be in the feet first, it may be in the hands, it may be widespread. And in Guillain-Barre, it often comes on and progresses subacutely, meaning over a few days or a couple of weeks. So the presence of those sensory symptoms is a strong clue that it's not myasthenia gravis. 
because Guillain-Barre is a disorder that affects the nerves. And myasthenia gravis is a disorder that affects the neuromuscular junction. So there really shouldn't be any sensory symptoms with autoimmune myasthenia gravis. Very helpful historical feature. There are some historical features which are not helpful. One of the classical things we're taught in neurology is that for disorders like myasthenia gravis, there's something called fatigability, which is a little bit of a misleading term because it's close to fatigue, which is really better described, or at least I think of fatigue as tiredness. When we talk about fatigability in the setting of neuromuscular disorders, it means that the weakness gets worse with exertion or at the end of the day. And the, and the problem there is that most things feel a little worse at the end of the day. We often feel worse at the end of the day, right? And it doesn't mean that we necessarily have a defect of neuromuscular transmission. So if we use, I feel worse at the end of the day as a sign of fatigability, we might mistakenly presume that it's related to autoimmune myasthenia gravis. Finally, some other things that can be helpful are a, sen a sense of the long-term timeline. Most of the time, Guillain-Barre is going to come on over a couple of days or weeks, whereas autoimmune myasthenia gravis is a chronic disorder with subacute fluctuations. So when we get a more detailed history, we might find that they had double vision in the past or a droopy eyelid in the past or trouble working over their head with their hands in the past with improvements and periodic worsening. So that sense of chronicity with subacute relapses is very much more suggestive of myasthenia gravis as opposed to a monophasic illness like Guillain-Barre. That's incredibly helpful. So we are digging in a little bit more to our history and uh, we have definitely walked the patient. In terms of other aspects of the physical exam, things that I often lose, my reflex hammer, is that going to be very useful here? So you're asking a neurologist how important the reflex hammer is. <laughs> And I have a statutory obligation to say it's the most important tool there is. So basically what you're telling me is my stethoscope, the head of my stethoscope is not adequate for this. <laughs> I don't know if you or any of your listeners are on social media, but one of the hallmarks of a neurologist is having Twitter fights over the best reflex hammer. One of the signs <laughs> that you, you either are or will be a neurologist. And I think from a practical perspective, for us, it is a, an extremely valuable tool. Because for patients who have Guillain-Barre, the, the absence of muscle stretch reflexes when they should be there, it's an important diagnostic clue in a disorder that can sometimes be tricky. It can be a little hard to diagnose Guillain-Barre until we have some uh, biomarker data, right? So it's very useful for us. I think it's a useful thing to have. If it's the only time a year that you check reflexes, then it might be less useful right? And we might rely on other tools or, or get an opinion from somebody that, that, that might also be able to lay eyes on that patient. This is your chance to throw down on the debate. What do you think is the very best reflex hammer? Well, there's only one answer. So <laughs> at Mayo Clinic, we historically for almost a hundred years have used a type of reflex hammer called a Tromner hammer, which we prefer because it has a, a, a weighted it's weighted in a fashion that allows us to be less subjective in checking the reflex. There are reflex hammers that are lighter and you can, you can tap the tendon 
harder and get the reflex, but it's nice to have a, a more standardized stimulus. I did a Twitter poll on this in, in the midst of one of those arcane, ridiculous Twitter arguments, and the Trumner won by a, by a mile. Most of my followers are probably people who have trained at Mayo Clinic or, <laughs> or otherwise biased in some way, so that's probably not a level one grade A evidence-based <laughs> recommendation, but the trauma you, is the best. You say that it's biased, but I think it's just that you've trained them correctly, and that's there's no question there. <laughs> well, if you want an unbiased opinion, I... Uh... I came to Mayo Clinic from a small school in Ohio and I was a psych resident and I had, I don't know the name of it, but it was a circular disc on top of a kind of a stick or pole type reflex hammer. And I remember doing the reflexes on the neuro rotation that way. And then uh, Dr. Matsumoto uh, was kind enough to share his Tromner hammer with me and it blew my mind. I went and got one from uh, the Department of Neurology office that day. And I've ever since had one. I bring one to every shift. It is an incredible hammer for anyone listening. I would absolutely recommend it. As somebody who is not a neurologist and did not train in neurology here at Mayo, it blows them all out of the water. Thank you, Vank. And just full disclosure, I do not have any intellectual property interest. <laughs> I'm not a stooge of, of big hammer. I'm not yes. <laughs> Absolutely. We will be happy to, to sign on an endorsement deal for them. <laughs> Could you go over what you expect on the reflex examination for GBS and myasthenia gravis? Absolutely. So when we see a patient with what we think might be an acute neuromuscular syndrome, Guillain-Barre or autoimmune myasthenia gravis, the reflexes really can help us at the very least differentiate those two disorders. In autoimmune myasthenia gravis, often, not always, but often the weakness is predominantly around the eyes or around our muscles of mastication, speech, and swallowing. And when it gets more generalized and severe, we can see proximal muscle weakness in our upper and lower limbs. Usually in autoimmune myasthenia gravis, the muscle stretch reflexes are preserved relatively. So if I see a patient who is so weak, like our patient at 1230, who can't stand from a chair, can't hold their arms above their head, if they're that weak and they still have preserved reflexes, I'm going to be much less suspicious that it's Guillain-Barre syndrome. Typically in Guillain-Barre syndrome, those muscle stretch reflexes will be reduced or absent. And that's in the upper limbs, in the lower limbs. The easiest reflex to check is to have the patient sit at the edge of the bed and tap on their patellar tendons. We can also tap on their Achilles tendons. We can tap on their biceps tendons, triceps as well. And if they're absent and we think they should be there, that's a clue that it may be Guillain-Barre syndrome. Sometimes in EM textbooks, they talk about ascending and descending. Do you find that in your, in your practice, specifically GBS being kind of a ascending pattern where it starts in the feet and myasthenia starting in the eyes and, and working down, or is that an oversimplified vision? I think it's a useful generalization, but not so reliable that you can trust it completely. If a patient, for example, doesn't say that their tingling started in their feet and then moved up, we are still going to be suspicious that those sensory symptoms in that setting could be Guillain-Barre syndrome. An important feature about the history in the exam 
for Guillain-Barre patients, and this is where we can get into trouble, is a patient who talks about sensory symptoms, and then we do our due diligence on the neurologic exam, and find that they have a relatively normal or completely normal sensory exam. This happens all the time with Guillain-Barre syndrome. And it's a little unexpected, it's a little paradoxical. It's not necessarily what we're taught in medical school. And that mismatch will sometimes create a, a mistaken impression that the patient really doesn't have a neurologic problem. Maybe they have something else going on, right? So that shouldn't dissuade you. If you have an index of suspicion that a patient may have Guillain-Barre syndrome based on the history and they're weak on exam and they have lost reflexes, a normal sensory exam should not dissuade you from the diagnosis. So to summarize back, I'm thinking through both of these diagnoses and I think through myasthenia and in particular, I'm listening for ocular symptoms, eyes, oral, jaw, and I've done my reflexes and my reflexes are normal. Uh, and this is compared with Guillain-Barre where my reflexes are diminished. There is the presence in the history, particularly of a, a sensory deficit or a sensory alteration, some paresthesias, tingling, something like that. Potentially the weakness started in the lower extremities, but not necessarily. Absolutely correct, Al. Another thing that can be helpful in the history for patients with an acute neuromuscular presentation is the extent to which the symptoms fluctuate. One of the hallmarks of autoimmune myasthenia gravis is that it is a disorder that can be chronic with subacute fluctuations over days and weeks. But that key feature is that it fluctuates. It, it goes up and down over time. And it may not get better or worse within a day, but it often will get better or worse over days and weeks. Another historical feature that can be important, and we can validate a little bit on the examination in a patient with Guillain-Barre, is difficulty walking. So whether or not a patient is having trouble with balance, have they had falls, that's a historical feature that's important. Because Guillain-Barre is a disorder of the nerves, they often will have pain. And the prototypic pain complaint is lower back pain that they had around the time that their sensory symptoms and weakness and balance trouble started. And another thing to ask that can be useful, we can't rely on it completely, and it's, and it's sometimes a bit of a red herring, is a trigger or some exposure that we might think has predisposed a patient to Guillain-Barre syndrome. We're all familiar with the risk of infections, such as an upper respiratory infection or a GI infection, especially if it's Campylobacter, preceding by days or weeks an episode of Guillain-Barre. And most patients will have something in their recent past that might make you think there was an immunologic trigger for Guillain-Barre syndrome, but the negative predictive value there is relatively poor. So an absence of a preceding infection should not dissuade you from the diagnosis if you otherwise think it's reasonable. And the other that is topical recently is vaccination. We do know that there is, with many different vaccines, a small increased risk in Guillain-Barre syndrome post-vaccination. We have seen this to some extent after COVID vaccinations with different formulations, and patients may have a history of recent vaccination or they may not. I'll mention here, even though it's a little off topic, is that patients may have Guillain-Barre after a vaccination, but they're much more likely to get Guillain-Barre after most of the infections that the vaccine is designed to prevent. And we have good data to substantiate this for multiple 
different types of illnesses from influenza to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. You're much more likely to get Guillain-Barre from the infection than you are from the vaccine designed to prevent it. You've done an incredible job of talking through historical features and physical exam features. You've referred several times to the physiology, but I know I could use a a refresher because uh, some of this goes back almost to step one in my mind and feels distant, certainly on a clinical shift. So autoimmune myasthenia gravis is rare. The prevalence of autoimmune myasthenia gravis is, depending on the population you're looking at, on the order of 10 to 20 to 30 per 100,000 patients in the population. So it's an uncommon or rare disorder. And that's important to remember. It's it's not going to be something you see on every shift or every 10th shift. The mechanism of autoimmune myasthenia gravis is in the name. It's an autoimmune disorder that in most patients with myasthenia gravis reflects an immune-mediated, antibody-mediated attack on the postsynaptic acetylcholine receptors. These are the parts of the muscle that receive the signal from the nerve telling the muscle to contract. And that immune-mediated mechanism will block that neuromuscular transmission and through a complement-mediated, another part of the immune system will actually result in a loss of the muscle's ability to contract when those nerve signals are transmitted through the muscle. So the brain is fine, the spinal cord is fine, the peripheral nerve is fine. The muscle, most of the muscle is fine, but the connection between the nerve and the muscle is impaired. And so the hallmark is weakness. And so this is why when we think about some historical treatments and testing, it was about trying to increase that signal and see if if it improves. And kind of along the lines of the historical features, you said in the morning, is it better? In the afternoon, is it worse when, when things are more fatigued? Is that right? That is right. I think most patients with myasthenia will be worse at the end of the day than they were at the beginning. But again, we can see that with other neuromuscular conditions like ALS or peripheral neuropathy, especially if we're using a subjective measure of that. One of the ways that we can make that assessment objective is on our physical exam. When we look at muscle strength, if the muscle strength worsens or if the strength declines with successive muscle contractions, in other words, if we have the patient hold their arms out and we push down repeatedly and they get weaker with successive pushes, that is a sign of fatigability that is suggestive of that neuromuscular junction mechanism. That's actually a feature common to other defects of neuromuscular transmission that aren't myasthenia gravis. For example, botulism or Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome. These are disorders that affect the neuromuscular junction, different from myasthenia gravis, but have in common that progressive loss of strength with sustained contraction. I have a much clearer picture in my mind of where our problem is. And if we contrast that a little bit with Guillain-Barre, where is the primary problem there and how is that going to lend itself to our evaluation? So Guillain-Barre syndrome is named after Guillain and Barre. And in medicine and neurology, most of our terminology has gravitated toward more descriptive pathophysiologic terms. One of the reasons Guillain-Barre has stuck around as an entity, as a concept, is that it's useful because it comprises a variety of different autoimmune disorders that affect the peripheral nerves. The most common mechanism or cause for Guillain-Barre syndrome is something called acute inflammatory demyelinating polyradiculopathy, or AIDP. 
which is frankly just one of the great phrases in medicine. I was going to say, please repeat that five times fast for me. <laughs> <laughs> so AIDP, if we look at the, at the pie of Guillain-Barre syndrome, the biggest piece would be AIDP. And it is an immune-mediated attack primarily on the myelin component of our peripheral nerves. And we need that myelin, that insulation for those electrical signals to be successfully transmitted from the central nervous system to the muscle, telling the muscles to move, and from our periphery back to our central nervous system, what's going on with sensation. And that's why with AIDP, Guillain-Barre more broadly, we see the prototypic combination of sensory symptoms and motor symptoms. If I'm charting as an emergency physician and, and I'm less certain, so Guillain-Barre is the more general term, and so that would be the, the bigger basket and AIDP would be a subset. Correct. And most of the time, it will be AIDP. For AIDP, we, we don't have many specific markers to prove that immune-mediated mechanism. In other words, we don't have, in most patients, an antibody in the blood or in the spinal fluid that tells us this is AIDP. There are some antibodies for the less common variants of Guillain-Barre, and those are important from a diagnostic and prognostic perspective. There are variants, for example, uh, acute motor axonal neuropathy, which can present as Guillain-Barre, but because the problem is with the axons or the wires themselves rather than the insulation, the course is often more prolonged and the outcomes are worse in patients who have that axonal loss, which is less forgiving than demyelinating disorders where the myelin may be more likely to heal. The long-term prognosis with AIDP is quite favorable. More than 80% of patients with AIDP will have a full functional recovery within six months. While we're talking about variants, I've heard of the Miller-Fisher variant. Can you go over that one as well? So the Miller-Fisher variant is a an autoimmune disorder that also affects peripheral nerves. There's a classic triad of ophthalmoparesis, areflexia, and ataxia. So the patients have lost their reflexes, they can't walk well, and they don't move their eyes well. It's an entity that was described by observant clinicians who then proceeded to name it after themselves. More recently, we've, we've recognized that there's a very specific immune-mediated response to a very specific protein called GQ1B. So we can, in patients who we think might have Miller-Fisher syndrome, we can check that antibody. It's not particularly useful in the emergency setting, but we can certainly think about it. And it's a good example of a disorder that sometimes bridges to other types of disorders. That protein is also expressed in the central nervous system. So there's a different disorder called Bickerstaff's encephalitis, named after Dr. Bickerstaff, which is mediated by the same antibody. So it's a great example of what look like two different clinical entities based on their presentation, but they have a common pathophysiologic mechanism. Thank you for going over all of that physiology with us. So at this point, we have to make a couple of decisions. And I'm imagining potentially that we might be an emergency department that doesn't have an incredible neurologist available to us 24 hours a day. What types of things can I get going for this patient to move this work up along? And I'm also thinking this patient's probably going to need to go to a facility that has a neurologist, but what can I, can I start at this point? Certainly. So when we think about diagnostic testing, we are thinking about neuromuscular disorders here, which can present with generalized weakness. An important caveat that we have to have in the back of our mind is what else can cause 
abrupt onset of weakness in the arms and legs. And we can't miss a spinal cord problem. That's not in the neuromuscular category, but as clinicians, we have to say, well, could this be a problem in the cervical spinal cord? So we have to at least stop and think about that. And if we do think about it, it might be reasonable in those patients to image the cervical spine if there's a history and exam that might support that possibility. And really, we're saying an MRI uh, because we're thinking about transverse myelitis, other types of things. And so we're, we're thinking about an MRI. Acute or subacute generalized weakness, we have to think about the cervical spine. And the best way to get good soft tissue discrimination, exactly right, Alex, is going to be with an MRI. As you're teasing out the history and physical examination between patients with neuromuscular disease and spinal cord syndromes, are there any pro tips that you have for that? So if we have symptoms above the neck, if we have any diplopia, if we have any dysarthria, if we have any dysphagia, and, and usually if we have any breathing trouble, we can take the cervical spine out of the picture, right? That's taken us mm-hmm. into the, to the brain stem and higher. So that, that's, that's a great way to say, if there's one unifying mechanism here, it really can't be in the cervical spine. With spinal cord disorders, as most of us recall, usually we will see some of the classic upper motor neuron findings. We may see hyperreflexia. We may see upgoing toes if we scratch the bottom of the feet, the Babinski reflex. In the acute setting, those upper motor neuron signs may be less reliable. So we can't fully exclude that possibility. And we, we just have to think about it, especially if we see other markers of spinal cord dysfunction, acute bowel or bladder dysfunction. We typically wouldn't see that as a presenting feature of Guillain-Barre. And we never would see that as a presenting feature of autoimmune myasthenia gravis. So it would be helpful to get some imaging going and take a couple of other things off the table unless we have those very specific historical features. I've read about some some specific antibodies I could test for in the blood, an acetylcholine receptor antibody, a muscle-specific receptor, tyrosine kinase, these kinds of things. Is this something that I should be drawing in the emergency department or not a focus of what I need to do to stabilize? I think at some point, those patients are often going to need those serum biomarkers. The likelihood that those will change your management in the acute setting is very low. And I think it's reasonable to manage the patient in front of you. There is, in in patients who you think may have Guillain-Barre syndrome, uh, a useful biomarker test to do that can help you with your diagnostic decision-making, not your management decision-making necessarily, but diagnostic decision-making, and that's a spinal fluid exam. So doing a lumbar puncture in a patient who who you think may have Guillain-Barre syndrome can be very helpful. Those patients prototypically will have cytoalbuminologic dissociation. In other words, they'll have a high CSF protein and a low or normal cell count in the CSF. And Cytoalbuminologic dissociation is one of those great phrases. It's just like acute inflammatory demyelinating polyradicular neuropathy. I, I call those job security words. It makes the, <laughs> it makes the patient think we know what we're talking about. But that is actually a really useful diagnostic biomarker. The, the negative predictive value of that elevated protein and normal cell count isn't perfect. But if you do see it, it can be a strong suggestion that this patient has Guillain-Barre syndrome and will likely need to be admitted for monitoring and therapy. Are there any other biomarkers or lab tests that I'm going to get that are going to give me this answer? 
in the emergency room, probably not that are going to give you the diagnosis. In the inpatient setting, we will often do an electrodiagnostic evaluation or an EMG. And in patients who present with acute or subacute weakness, it's often the most useful test we have because not only will it confirm the presence of a neuromuscular disorder, it will tell us which category and sometimes the specific diagnosis for what we're dealing with. On the EMG, if we see a lot of slowing of conduction velocities in nerves, we are going to be suspicious for something like Guillain-Barre syndrome. We can do some specialized tests called repetitive nerve stimulation, where we shock individual nerves successively. And if we see the amplitude or the amount of muscle response go down with each shock, that's an electrophysiologic proxy for that fatigable muscle weakness that patients with myasthenia gravis have. So an EMG in the inpatient setting can be very useful, probably not going to be useful in the emergency department though. But I think there is a really important message here, which is that a couple of the tests that we do uncommonly in the ED, we need to think about upfront, getting the patient up and walking, which is hard to do from a systems point of view. It sounds silly, but it is. And we got to be more aggressive on that. And there isn't a blood test that's going to give us the answer. It's about getting that LP done to try and get some more information if GBS is high on our differential. There's a a lot of easy blood tests for us to order, but really it's about trying to move the workup forward potentially with a lumbar puncture. I had two follow-up questions for you, Dr. Jones. When thinking about the EMG, does that have to be done in a specialty center or are the findings common enough that essentially any EMG would be able to distinguish? It's a great question, Bank. Both of these disorders that we're talking about Guillain-Barre syndrome and autoimmune myasthenia gravis are uncommon. Guillain-Barre syndrome is a little less rare than myasthenia, but collectively, these are not things that we encounter frequently. And many electrodiagnostic providers who, who don't do EMGs in the inpatient setting may encounter these infrequently. And some of the subtle features that we may see that indicate the presence of Guillain-Barre, especially in the first few days, or some of the specialized techniques that we have to do in patients who have relatively mild myasthenia gravis. The most sensitive test we have is a a test called single fiber EMG. Those require some experience. There is some operator variability in terms of how the tests are performed. So in general, for both of those tests, you do want an experienced operator doing that electrodiagnostic evaluation. If we really want to exclude those disorders or sort out what is sometimes a confusing clinical scenario. That makes sense. My other question relates to the biomarkers. Even if they don't help us in the emergency department, is the yield of those tests higher in the acute phase, for example, with myasthenia, such that we should do them in the emergency department? Great question. And the the presence of those serum markers in patients who have autoimmune myasthenia gravis. Again, the most common marker are antibodies to the acetylcholine receptor. Less commonly, as Alex said, those patients will have antibodies to a different protein called musk, and even less commonly than that to one called LRP4 or LARP4. Some patients with autoimmune myasthenia gravis are early in their course, or they have very mild disease, and they may not have any antibodies at all. So I think I think if there's reasonable access to 
a neuromuscular or neurologic opinion, and that can be done in the hospital or that can be done in the outpatient setting. It's perfectly appropriate to wait for those antibody draws to, to make sure that the most useful, the highest yield tests are performed. So I wouldn't, in the emergency department, feel obligated whatsoever to send those antibodies off. I've also read about a thymoma frequently being involved with autoimmune myasthenia gravis. Can you shed some light on, on how those disease processes are related? So we know autoimmune myasthenia gravis is an immune-mediated disorder. In most patients, as is the case in most autoimmune disorders, we don't know why it happens, what precipitated or prompted the immune-mediated attack, in this case, on the neuromuscular junction. A minority of patients with myasthenia gravis will have a thymoma. And so the immune response presumably is directed at the thymoma, the tumor in the thymus gland, and through collateral damage, through friendly fire, is also causing this neuromuscular autoimmune disorder. It's helpful from a treatment perspective if someone has a thymoma, sometimes the myasthenia gravis is how we find that out. And the definitive treatment is to remove that thymoma. But in most patients, there is no thymoma. We, do, we are obligated when we diagnose autoimmune myasthenia gravis, we do have to do a CT scan, making sure we're looking carefully at the mediastinum with careful and thoughtful radiologic experience looking for that thymoma. We've also seen in a relatively recently completed clinical trial that even patients who don't have a thymoma, most of those patients in the long-term will benefit from having a thymectomy. So just having the thymus removed in a thymoma negative patient is also helpful. I'm thinking about a different aspect. I know Dr. Finch was bringing up the kind of diagnostic considerations and I'm fast forwarding to the conversation that inevitably would happen where I'm telling a patient, I think that we have to consider these very scary sounding diseases. Oftentimes I experience that patients believe they automatically need admission. How do I make that decision about which of these patients with myasthenia or GBS need to be in the hospital? And secondarily, which ones need to be transferred to a major center to see experts like yourself? It's a great question, Bank. And I think it's a good opportunity to talk about how do we manage these patients who have acute neuromuscular syndromes? And there's a pretty big overlap. We've already talked about some of the similarities between these patients. They can have the acute or subacute onset or worsening of weakness. We have also talked about how they both share an autoimmune mechanism. Another feature they share is that they can have life-threatening complications. Patients who are in myasthenic crisis and patients who have Guillain-Barre syndrome are at risk for ventilatory failure. So it's worthwhile to think about the natural history and the risk of the disorder. So if a patient has come in with a neuromuscular syndrome and it's a rapid decline and there's any ventilatory compromise, that's a patient who's gonna to need to be admitted to an inpatient setting. And if it's a facility that doesn't have the capability for intensive respiratory monitoring, those patients should go to a center that has that capability. And I think it's also useful to think about what are the things we look for in a patient who has one of these acute neuromuscular syndromes? What are the signs of respiratory crisis that we want to be mindful of? And one of the traps I've seen clinicians fall into is a trust and reliance in the pulse oximeter, which is a great way to follow oxygenation. 
But in patients who have acute neuromuscular syndromes, the problem is with ventilation. And the oximeter is useful in so much as it will be the alarm that goes off right before the code blue is called. Those patients have ventilatory insufficiency. They have more difficulty eliminating carbon dioxide than they have bringing in oxygen. So there are other measures that are more useful to assess a patient in the emergency setting and monitor them in the inpatient setting. Simple things like respiratory rate, general effort and work of breathing, using our clinical judgment. If a patient looks tired from respiratory effort, that's an impending crisis. And those patients often need elective ventilatory support, intubation and ventilation to protect their airway and ventilatory status. And we have some measures that are more useful than the oximeter in those settings. The most useful measure that we have is getting a sense of the strength of the breathing muscles. We can do that at the bedside to a limited extent. We can have the patient lie flat. Patients who have neuromuscular ventilatory insufficiency will often feel much more comfortable sitting up than lying down. And the reason is when sitting up, the abdominal contents are moved out of the thoracic cavity and the work of the diaphragm is reduced to ventilate the patient. When the patient lies down, those abdominal contents shift up and there has to be more diaphragmatic effort to do the work of breathing. In a patient who has Guillain-Barre or a myasthenic crisis, that lying supine position will be very uncomfortable for them. And we can also see something called paradoxical breathing. When a patient lies down, if they have normal diaphragmatic strength and they take a deep breath, we'll see the abdominal wall move up toward the ceiling. In a patient who has diaphragmatic weakness and is lying down and takes a deep breath, if the diaphragm is weak, it'll just be pulled into the thoracic cavity by the negative pressure and the, and the wall, upper wall of the abdomen will move down. That's called paradoxical breathing, a bedside test for ventilatory sufficiency. A more definitive would be to do uh, bedside spirometry. So if we can measure the forced vital capacity, the maximum inspiratory pressure and the maximum expiratory pressure, we can get a better sense of how strong are those respiratory muscles and determine, is this a patient that we are going to need to electively intubate to protect their airway? I had heard about something called a bugle pressure. How does that relate to these other measures, forced vital capacity, et cetera? So the forced vital capacity is the amount of air that we're moving with a single deep breath. The bugle pressures are, they may not be specific to Mayo Clinic. I think this is the only place I've heard them commonly used. It's just another descriptive term for those maximal inspiratory and maximal expiratory pressures. So a more useful measure than oximetry in monitoring our patients who may be at risk for ventilatory failure is something called the 20-30-40 rule. If we can measure at the bedside the patient's forced vital capacity, maximum inspiratory pressure, and maximum expiratory pressure, this can give us a good sense of how strong those respiratory muscles are and how at risk that patient may be for requiring ventilation. If the force vital capacity is greater than 20 cc's per kilogram, if the maximum inspiratory pressure is greater than 30 centimeters of water, and the maximum expiratory pressure is greater than 40 centimeters of water, we can be reasonably reassured that that patient may need additional monitoring, but probably doesn't need 
elective ventilation at that moment in time. And when we get on the south side of those numbers, it's when we get worried that a patient needs more ventilatory protection. And it's much better to do an elective intubation in a controlled setting than in the midst of a crisis. I'm getting a window into why you have such high teaching scores. I can see you at the bedside talking about paradoxical breathing patterns and really just opening the eyes and minds of students and learners. I know my my eyes would be open if you were to point that out. And then it seems like 20, 30, 40 would be a really easy set of numbers to remember. It's ripe for bedside teaching, it sounds like. 20, 30, 40. Exactly right, Bank. Let's assume that our imaginary patient decompensates in our small community emergency department. What steps can we take at that point to best serve the patient? And what would we expect would happen after they're admitted to the neuro ICU? It's a great question, Alex. And as you and your listeners know, the first thing to do is always to rescue. So we want to, in that patient who has reached the point of ventilatory failure, we need to protect their airway and ventilate them. So intubation and ventilation until you get to a definitive care setting and, and treatment plan. It's always helpful to have clear sense of the diagnosis before you start on treatment of either of these autoimmune disorders. But Guillain-Barre and autoimmune myasthenia gravis are both autoimmune disorders and will respond to immunotherapy. In the acute inpatient setting, patient with Guillain-Barre or a patient with myasthenia gravis, the use of IVIG or plasma exchange both have high quality class one evidence of benefit of shortening the course of the, the monophasic Guillain-Barre syndrome and getting a patient out of a myasthenic crisis. So we want to know the diagnosis for, for clarity and prognosis and long-term management, but in the acute inpatient setting, frequently in the neurointensive care unit, plasma exchange or IVIG might be used for either of those disorders. An important difference in immunotherapy is response to steroids. IV steroids are very useful in patients who have myasthenic crisis requiring intubation or admission to the hospital. It's also a mainstay of long-term immunotherapy in patients with autoimmune myasthenia gravis. On the other hand, we have reasonably good evidence that in patients who have Guillain-Barre, at the very least, steroids don't help and they may actually make things a little worse. So we really want to know which of these two disorders are we dealing with in the inpatient setting, especially if we're contemplating the use of high-dose corticosteroids. And that really comes back to the LP and getting that done as soon as possible to differentiate between those two. Okay. Ideally, we want to do the LP before we give the steroids. We're intubating to get them safely to a higher level of care. And then when they arrive, either way, they're probably going to get plasma exchange or uh, IVIG. What about pyridostigmine and in what situations would, would somebody get that? That's a great question, Alex. So pyridostigmine is a drug that's been around for a long time. The former brand name, which we'll still hear used from time to time is Mestinon. And pyridostigmine is a drug that inhibits an enzyme called acetylcholinesterase. Acetylcholinesterase is an enzyme that exists in all of our neuromuscular junctions, and it exists to break down that acetylcholine neurotransmitter. So we have a nerve signal that goes to the muscle, tells the muscle to contract. The enzyme breaks down the acetylcholine, and the process repeats itself. 
in patients who have autoimmune myasthenia gravis, you can boost the signal by inhibiting that acetylcholinesterase with an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor like pyridostigmine. We have more acetylcholine in that synaptic cleft, and we can have a, a greater efficiency of neuromuscular transmission. It is very much a symptomatic treatment. It is not a long-term therapy for most patients, except for some of my patients who have mild, mostly ocular myasthenia gravis, but it can be useful as an adjunctive therapy. We have to be careful with it as a diagnostic tool. Sometimes folks will say, well, if this patient has myasthenia gravis, if I give them pyridostigmine and they're better, it could be a useful diagnostic clue. And there is some reasonable scientific basis for that. But if we give a patient pyridostigmine and they say they feel better, we all know the power of placebo. We have to be really careful about that. So our most useful diagnostic tests are the ones we've talked about. The mainstay would be for a patient with myasthenia, the electrodiagnostic evaluation and those antibody tests. We have to be really careful about using a, a subjective response to a medication as part of our clue to the diagnosis. And so for a patient who needs to be admitted for autoimmune myasthenia gravis, but does not need to be intubated, what therapies need to be initiated in the emergency department? I think in the ED, the main thing is to ensure they have preserved ventilatory function. They will often have bulbar weakness and may have difficulty clearing their secretions and putting them in an appropriately monitored setting to watch for the potential for respiratory decline are probably the most important treatment decisions you're going to make at that moment. A patient who is that severe because of their autoimmune myasthenia gravis, pyridostigmine in general isn't going to get you out of that situation. Pyridostigmine is a relatively safe drug, but it is in theory possible to use enough of that acetylcholinesterase inhibitor that we create worsening weakness. And we used to see that in the distant past before there was a common use of immunotherapy for myasthenia, we would actually see patients on very high doses of pyridostigmine and their weakness would get worse. So in the emergency department, I think the most important things are to recognize, to rescue, to use the right level of care, to monitor for decline or provide ventilatory support if needed. And then move quickly to that definitive immunotherapy, which again, for Guillain-Barre or for myasthenia is going to be IVIG plasma exchange, or sometimes a combination of the two. This has been really wonderful. I know I have pages of notes that I've taken from you already, Lyle. If I could summarize what I've heard and please interrupt, redirect me if I'm mishearing or forgetting something. But when I'm seeing somebody with weakness, first, we have to have an open mind, whether this is actual muscular weakness or loss of power in the muscle, as you said it, or if this is something more along the lines of fatigue, tiredness, sleepiness, et cetera. And then from there, looking for historical clues about the time course and whether there are exacerbations and periods where things are better, as in myasthenia gravis, or if it's monophasic, as you described for GBS, a longer time course for myasthenia and a much more acute illness for GBS. Are there precipitant illnesses, GI or respiratory illnesses that could give us a clue? And then we have to spend some time on our physical examination, trying to tease some of this out, considering having them walk being a very key piece of this, reflexes with a Tromner hammer being very important. In the back of our minds, always asking ourselves, could this be a spinal cord issue? And one of the key distinctions there are, are the symptoms above the, the neck? 
um, or are there bowel or bladder symptoms? And if there's any consideration getting imaging of the spine. We should keep in mind the pathophysiology of these two diseases, and one is a nerve problem in the fact of GBS, and one is a neuromuscular junction problem, as in myasthenia gravis. And although both are rare, they can present, and we should be on the lookout for them. And in terms of the ED goals, it will be to further the diagnostic workup, and then also keep an eye out for who might decompensate. And there's a lot less involvement in acute treatment for these illnesses in the emergency department, and that's going to happen more in the inpatient setting. The key test for us is less about blood and more about spinal fluid and looking for high CSF protein, lower cell counts, and involving specialty evaluation in these patients. In terms of deciding about respiratory stability, looking at work of breathing, respiratory rate, findings of ventilatory failure, as opposed to focusing on the pulse ox, which could lead us astray, or at least not highlight the problem until it's too late. And we talked about 20, 30, 40, forced vital capacity, max inspiratory pressure of uh, over 30, and max expiratory pressure over 40 as being some objective measures of stability or safety from a ventilatory perspective. And then in terms of what to counsel patients on that they might experience down the road, further diagnostic testing such as EMG by somebody with experience to distinguish these would be very helpful. And then the treatments are going to be very similar up front with IVIG and PLEX or plasma exchange, but they diverge a little when it comes to steroids, where steroids are helpful for myasthenia and have the slight potential to be harmful for GBS. Does that summarize what we've talked about so far? Anything else you would add to that? That was a great summary, Bank. You know, at the end of the day, one of the reasons I like neuromuscular medicine is that muscles only have one job. They just contract, they get short. Nerves only have two jobs. They send signals to the brain and commands back to the body in the form of muscle contraction. So neurologically, these are much simpler systems to outsmart than the cerebellum and the basal ganglia. And it's very patient-centered and it's very clinically based and observational. And, and I think you've hit the high points for the neuromuscular crises to be on the lookout for in the ED. This has been so wonderful. You clearly shine as an educator. Your, your words are so effective. Um, your descriptions, I wrote down so many of them, including just weakness as being loss of power in the muscle. I feel like I knew what that was, but I, I couldn't articulate it the way you did. And I'm very grateful for your time. I know Dr. Finch is as well. All our listeners are probably going to want to listen to this a couple times to really get the most out of it. Thank you so much for spending the afternoon with us, Dr. Jones. This has been really wonderful. Thank you, Vank, and thank you, Alex. It was really a pleasure to be here. This was a lot of fun. Take a moment to like, download, follow, comment, or whatever about our podcast on any platform that you're using. All of those engagements really help bring our podcast to the forefront for more listeners and more engagement. We hope you enjoyed this as much as we did. Thank you so much for listening to Always On EF. The Always On EM Podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Bellamconda.